0: Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. Well, the first few messages are about the introduction
1: to this great book, and, and I want to Get a foundation as we begin to build through that. So today I want to talk to you, part of that introduction, I want to talk to you first of all about a faithful apostle, a difficult situation, and a glorious revelation, all right? So I want you to read with me here in chapter one, beginning in verse one, and I'll share with what verses we'll be reading. That's what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place and he sent and communicated it by his angel underline this to his bond servant John to his bond servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw verse 4 John to the seven churches that are in Asia grace to you and peace verse 9 I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos, called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. First of all, I want you to see... A faithful apostle. When it comes to the question of who wrote the book of Revelation, there's no doubt the person who wrote it, his name was John. Now, different people will say different things about who that John might be, but most scholars and theologians agree that this John is the beloved apostle, the one that Jesus loved, and the one who emphasized all time that I was loved almost as though with unbelief. I have been loved by Jesus Christ. He's the one who laid his head on the breast of Jesus. He's the one who's closest to Jesus in the sense of their fellowship and their friendship. He says that I am John. One of the reasons we believe is the apostle John. Who else could just say John and have credibility? Amen. I mean, everybody in the church knew who John was. They understood who John the Apostle was. He lived, as we'll find, into his 90s, as we'll talk about just a minute, his ministry. But there was no doubt when somebody said John, they meant that it was John the Apostle. The second thing about it, he says there in verse number one, he says, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting how every one of his apostles, whenever they wrote an epistle... Are any of those who were followers of Jesus like his brothers Jude or James every one of those who followed Jesus they would emphasize the point that they were bond servants of Jesus. They didn't have to be servants they weren't demanded to be servants but they chose to be servants of Jesus because they understood that he was worthy to follow and the greatest place that they could be is to be in service to him. A bondservant of Jesus. And that's the way John introduced himself. I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm giving you those notes up on the screen so that you'll be able to write those things down. All right? So that you'll have those. Remember, I'm going to give them to you online as well. Not only, though, does he say he's a bondservant of Jesus. That's what he says in verse 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. He said, this is what my ministry is. My ministry, my calling, my work is to bear witness about what Jesus has done in my life and to bear witness to the word and the testimony of the word of God. That's all that John was about. When you read about John, historically, you find out everywhere he went, he just talked about Jesus. Everywhere he went, he spoke the word of God. Everywhere he went as a pastor of a fellowship, he ministered to people and it was always built on Jesus And the Word of God. Isn't that a pretty good place to build your life? Isn't that a pretty good testimony to have? That you build your life on the witness of what Jesus Christ has done in my life and the Word of God in my heart. The Word of God as He has spoken to me in regard to it. Well, we understand some things about about John historically. We know that he stayed in Jerusalem for a lot of his ministry until 70 AD. You remember what happened in 70 AD? In 70 AD, the Romans came in, they destroyed Jerusalem, they tore the temple down. That's when the event of Masada happens. At that particular time, when Jerusalem destroyed, John got up and he went to Asia or Asia Minor. When he went to Asia Minor, he lived there and he lived in Ephesus, where he became the pastor of the church of Ephesus. For about 25 years, he was the pastor of that great church that Paul helped to start. Now, could you imagine this? To be the church who's founded by Paul and whose pastor is John. (laughs) That's a pretty good place to be, right? But he spent his life and he spent his ministry there caring and ministering to the people. Unlike all the other apostles, he was one who did not die at an early age through being a martyr. In Nero's reign in the 50s and 60s AD, both Paul and Peter were put to death. But he doesn't die then. He lives on into his 90s. Matter of fact, this revelation, most people believe the revelation was written 95 to 96 AD. They believe he was born in about 6 AD. He was probably the youngest of all the apostles. So he would have been in his 90s whenever he wrote this book. So he has this long life, this long ministry, this long influence that he has In the lives of people. And there he is ministering at Ephesus whenever he was in his 90s. But this passage tells us something else about him. It tells us that he lives in a time of tribulation. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulations and kingdom and perseverance which are in Christ. It tells us that he's going through a difficult time. The church was going through a difficult time. In in the first century, there were two horrific experiences the church had under Roman dominion. One of those was in the reign of Nero. That was in the 50s and 60s. That's when Peter was put to death as well as Paul put to death under the reign of Nero. The second one of those horrific times was in the reign of Domitian. And this is the time of the reign of Emperor Domitian. Domitian reigned from 81 AD to 96 AD AD for 15 years. And let me tell you about Domitian. His daddy was was the emperor before him. His name was Vespian. And he was a great general and he was fairly an honorable emperor. His brother was Titus, who was a powerful general in the Roman army, and it's actually Titus who is in charge of the military that destroys Jerusalem and takes out the temple. But Domitian was not a military man, but he was cunning, and he was so cunning and so deceptive that he ends up being appointed and being selected as being the emperor over Rome. Domitian was cruel and bloodthirsty. Cruel and bloodthirsty. He was so cruel, he would kill the members of his own household, whether brother, sister, children, anybody that he thought that might stand up against him or oppose him or be a challenge to his reign. He would put them to death. He was cruel and he was bloodthirsty. Something else about him. He was the first emperor who demanded that people would call him their master and their God, our Lord and God. The first one who required of that. Now, think of it. What had happened prior to that time is when a Roman Caesar, whenever they would die, they would be called a god. After they were died, they were issued in and ushered in as being a god that somebody would worship, but not Domitian. He wanted to be worshiped before he ever died. So he required that everybody would call him their lord, their master, their god. And then he was the one who built graven images. And every place of worship there was, he would put an image of himself. And he would require of everybody who worshipped, whatever religion they were, whatever they worshipped, they all had to bow down. They all had to bow down and pay homage to him. They had to bow down and worship him. Now think about that. Here's Domitian, who's this emperor. He's ruling over Rome. All throughout the Roman kingdom, there are Christians everywhere. And here comes a man who says, you have to bow down and you have to worship me. Well, that issues in this difficult time for Christians. Christians were treated cruelly because they refused to worship any God but Jehovah. (laughs) You hear the song we sang up there? I didn't help Kevin sing that song. There's no God but Jehovah. Jehovah, That's a great song to go along with his message because that's what we believe, right? There's only one God and that's Jehovah and he's the only one that we will worship. They also were prevented from bowing down to graven images. Therefore, they were going to refuse to bow down to him. Bow down to that image of Domitian, they were not going to do it. Something else about Christianity, though, that caused them to be in conflict in in regard to them is that Christians were totally, absolutely obedient to Jesus. He was Lord of their life. And if Domitian said to do something, they weren't about to do it. Only if Jesus said do it. That's what it mattered. Hey, hold on a second. That's where we're supposed to be living. Amen. He is our Lord. He's our king. He's the leader of our life. And we're supposed to be obedient to him. Not only that, though, he was, it was also the fact that whenever they were as Christians, they were very evangelistic. They went out and they told people about Jesus. They tried to encourage people to become a part of the Christian faith. They tried to encourage them that the only hope you've got is in Jesus Christ to have eternal life. And because they were evangelistic, that put them at odds against Rome. Because, see, Rome... What they would do, anybody they conquered, they would just accept whatever gods were that country's gods and they would make it a part of their gods. You've probably seen the Pantheon. The Pantheon is the place where they would take and they would write the names and the images of all gods of the peoples that they conquered. And so Rome was totally satisfied that if they conquered a people, they'd just put that god up there. Pan means all, theos means God, all gods. So Rome was happy to have all gods. So long as all those gods were considered kind of equal, but if somebody came along and said their God was the only God and that you need to know this God and became evangelistic, that put them at odds with Rome, put them at odds with Domitian, and therefore they're going to be in a time of tribulation. And Domitian set out to cruelly treat and persecute the Christians. He would do all kinds of things to them. He would boil them in oil. He would have wild animals. He had the games within the uh, Colosseum. Every way he could bring and humiliate Christians, he sought to do that. And one of the things that he realized is that John, this old apostle John, who was the pastor of the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, that that if if he would take him, and he would work on him and persecute him, and if he could cause him to, to deny his faith, that that would be a powerful thing to do. So he set his sights against John. Well, Tertullius says this, that actually what Domitian tried to do was to boil John in oil. That's one of the legends, boil John in oil, and whenever he wouldn't boil... There wasn't nothing he could do with it. Now, others say that that didn't happen. I like it pretty good. Amen. (laughs) I, I like that pretty good. But whether it happened or not, Domitian was set out that he was going to weaken John and to attack the church through this faithful apostle. So he didn't want to just kill him as a martyr, some people say. So instead of doing that, they sent him, he sent him to this small island about 24 miles off of Asia Minor. This small island is called the Isle of Patmos. And whenever he sent him out to the Isle of Patmos, he was about 90 years old. And it's a rocky place where the only thing that happened out there were the exile of people. It was not a place that you had a lot to live. There was not a lot of protection from the elements. And what he thought was... He's either going to go out there, John is going to go out there, and he's going to do one of two things. He's going to die because of being exposed, and I won't have to deal with him anymore. Or either he is going to recant of his faith because he cannot stand it, and I will win the victory. So he sends him out to the Isle of Patmos in order to persecute him. And so whenever the writing of this letter takes place, it happens there on the Isle of Patmos. Now, think about it. Here's faithful John, 90-year-old, pastor of this church, who is being persecuted by Domitian, a faithful apostle, in a difficult situation in the midst of persecution by Domitian. And now he in a, is a di- in a difficult place out in the isle, on the Isle of Patmos with all the elements and very little to eat and finding out what is going to happen to him. But here's the great thing about God and the great thing about the plan of God is that this faithful apostle in a difficult situation has the opportunity of receiving a glorious revelation. Amen. Now, here's the interesting thing and I think the humorous thing about God. Patmos, the Isle of Patmos is probably the most unlikely place that you would ever pick on the face of the earth to receive The revelation of Jesus Christ.
0: Isn't
1: that true? I mean, if you thought about where's the revelation, where is the revelation of Jesus Christ gonna happen? It would not be the Isle of Patmos. But God says, I'm gonna do it right there on the Isle of Patmos. And why does that happen? Well, a number of things. First of all, I think God helps us to understand that even in the most difficult of situations that we go through, God is still able to reveal His glory. Amen? In the most trying of circumstances, when man says that you can be defeated and the pressures of life will be placed upon you, God shows up. It's like the Apostle Paul when he's in jail. He said, the gospel of Christ and the Spirit of God cannot be jailed. It cannot be held in a prison. And the Spirit of God cannot be hindered from coming to the man of God, even on the Isle of Patmos. And so God there on this Isle of Patmos where Domitian has placed John, God is going to send to him the glorious revelation. Now, how does it happen? And, and, and why does it happen there? Well, uh, other than the fact that God chose it, let me show you something neat about John. It's not a challenge your heart. This is what it says in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, was on the Isle of Patmos because of my testimony and the word of God. Listen to 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's the key, friend, right there. He did not let his circumstances, his situation, pull him down. But rather, he says... I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. How could God give this glorious revelation? Because that old apostle, that faithful apostle, did not let the circumstances of life pull him down. But he chose on the Lord's day to be in the Spirit. And as he was in the Spirit, the Spirit of God comes to him and Jesus Christ reveals himself to him in a glorious revelation Wonderful revelation I don't know about you that excites my spirit Because sometimes I feel like I'm on the Isle of Patmos. What about you? You ever felt like you were out there in those difficult situations? God shows up But how does God do it because we choose to be in the spirit? We do not let the circumstances of our life dictate where we are spiritually Did you hear that? Let me say it again. We do not let the circumstances of our life dictate where we are spiritually. We can be in the Spirit on the Isle of Patmos. Now, don't make excuses for yourself. We all make excuses about ourselves. Well, if you knew what I was going through right now, you'd understand why I am or where I am or what I'm doing. Hey, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do. It. God knows where you are. You understand that? God knows exactly where you are, and God knows that in that place, at that time, if you will be in the Spirit, that God will reveal Himself and reveal things that you can never, ever imagine. So, when you find yourself on that Isle of Patmos the next time, just get in the Spirit and say, "Dear God, what are you going to show me today? What are you going to show me today?" Because that's the way. God works. Let me show you one of the funniest things about this whole story. Jesus comes to him, to John, and reveals himself. When John said this, I I heard a sound, a voice, and the sound like a trumpet. And he said, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. That is the ushering in of the revelation. But here's, here's here's the humorous thing to me. Is Domitian... He dies in 96 A.D. Now remember, I told you the revelation was given somewhere in 95 or 96 A.D. So here's Domitian who's the emperor who wants everybody to worship. He's been ruling from 81 to 96. And he's going to take on God. And he's going to take on the Apostle John. And he's going to put him out there on the Isle of Patmos. So that he's either going to be exposed to die. Or he's going to recant his faith. But all God does is send the glorious revelation that all of us have been reading. That reveals Jesus in all the fullness of his glory. And Domitian dies in 96. You got it? He dies in 96. Where is that? Have you got that up there? I want you to see it. Look at that little box. Domitian faced his judgment before the old man of Patmos ever died. Amen. (laughs) And what happened in 96? Nerva became the emperor and he brought John back off the isle of Patmos, put him at Ephesus. He continued to pastor there until he died of natural causes. Isn't that great? (laughs) I love that. I love that. Domitian thinks that he's going to tear down John. All God does is use Domitian as an instrument whereby he's going to give the revelation on the Isle of Patmos, and whenever that gets done and taken care, Domitian goes to his judgment, and John gets to go back home. Let me tell you something. If you'll read that, you'll study that, you'll meditate on that. When God gets through with you on your Isle of Patmos, you might get to go home too, Amen. <laughs> but here's the key. Here's the key. You've got to be in the Spirit and get the revelation if you're planning to go home. That's why you're out there. Domitian sent him out there to exile and God sent him out there to send back something precious to the church of the living God. You've got to be willing to do on Patmos what you can do, what God has you to do, so you get to go home. Amen. And Roman emperors and Roman Caesars are just puppets in the hand of God. Puppets in the hand of God. That's the faithful prophet. That's the difficult situation he went in. But now he's received this glorious revelation. I can't wait to get there. We start talking about it. But before we do that, I want to talk to you about the authors of this book. Who are the authors? It's not John. It's not John. He tells you who the authors are. Look at verse 4. He says, Grace to you and peace. From him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who is it that's sending this message? Who is it that is authoring this revelation? He says it's the triune God. He identifies everyone of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. And he's a good preacher. You know why? Because he has three points about each one of them. Amen. Praise God. (laughs) He has three points about everyone. First of all, he says, to him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's talking about the eternal Father. The eternal Father God. He is, he was, he is to come, and to God. All of those are the same. We live in a linear time frame. We know the past and and we, we know the future is out there. And right now we live right here in the present. You know where God lives? He lives in the eternal present. He is, he was, and he is to come. He's never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. He's the creator of time. And there is a point where there be time no more. And we shall live in eternity. When you don't understand what God is like, it's because you're trying to understand God in terms of time. God created time. God is beyond time. And he is totally, absolutely eternal. He is the eternal father. But not only does he say the eternal father is the one who has authored this, but he says, listen, the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, as we get in the study, we'll talk about the symbols and the numbers of the revelation. Numbers are important to God. Did y'all know that? I want to show you and reveal what the symbolism of those numbers are. Right now, I want to suffice this to say that the number seven represents completeness. It represents fullness. It represents all. That, that means that whenever he says to write this letter to the seven churches, he says to write this to all. All the churches, the churches in fullness. You got that? The number seven, you'll find throughout the scripture, we'll talk about the significance of that, but the number seven means fullness, completeness, all that there is. This is what he says about the spirit of God. The spirit of God is full and complete and all there is of God. Did you know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are the three persons of the Godhead, but there is only one God, and all of them are the fullness of God? Now, if you understand that, you're smart. That's hard to understand. That's the mystery of God, but it's all true. And it says that there are seven spirits, the fullness of the Spirit of God, who what? Who sits before the throne. Why does he sit before the throne? Because he is the active one who works with us in our lives now. And he's constantly at the throne to know what the Father would will that is carried out in the lives of the church and the life of us. He's actively involved in what God is doing in and through our lives. The Holy Spirit of God lives and dwells in the heart of every believer. And he has intimate fellowship with God the Father and God the Son to carry out the purpose of God in your life. Isn't that good to know? That you're not an accident. That what's happening in your life is not happenstance. It's because he's checked at the throne room. And what's happening in your life is what God wants to happen in your life. What God's trying to do in your heart of life. But not only is it the eternal Father and the Spirit. Look what it says in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ. Three points to him. Faithful witness. Amen. Amen and amen. He was the faithful witness. He's the man, the God man who came here. He's the Son of God who revealed what God was like, for God is far beyond what we could ever grasp or understand. We understand what God is like because the faithful witness revealed in all of his glory and humility what God is like to us. But not only that, he's the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? Two things. First of all, he's the first one who was resurrected. First one resurrected So, Oh, no, Brother Mac, hold on a second. I know that's not true. I know that Lazarus was resurrected, and I know back in the Old Testament they were resurrected. No, they weren't. Not really. They were resuscitated. That's right. You know what the difference is? Because they eventually died. When you are resurrected, you do not die. Death has no hold on you. And the only one who is resurrected and who did not die again is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the promise for you. You've been promised the resurrection where you will never have death to touch you again. So he's the first one who ever was resurrected. The promise that we know that we shall be resurrected. But the second thing, the firstborn means preeminence. He's the most important one of all. Of all who have died and lived and lived again, there is none who is like Jesus. He has all preeminence. But not only does he say, he's faithful witness that he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is in charge. You see that in the fact of what I just told you about Domitian. He thought he was in charge. Who was really in charge? God, Jesus Christ, our government thinks they're in charge. They're not in charge. God's in charge. He's fulfilling his plan and his purpose. Jesus is Lord of lords and king of kings and ruler over all kings. Praise be his name. Amen? Amen. Praise be his name. Final thing I want you to see, you got to hurry. Y'all not listening fast enough, all right? You're going to have to listen faster. I want you to see who this book is dedicated to. It tells you the three authors, but it's only dedicated to one of those of the Godhead. Listen to what it says in verse number five. To him who loves us and released us or washed us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be kings or a kingdom and priests to his God. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's only one that this book is dedicated to. Only one who is given the honor through this book. And that is the son Jesus Christ. And he says the reason that he receives the dedication and the reason he's so important. And the reason this revelation is all about him is because of four things he did for us. And my friend today, you ought to praise God. You ought to be a Baptist all day. You ought to be walking on top of them chairs. Just on the basis of what he did. Amen. You hear what he says he did? First of all, he said he loves us. Jesus came from glory to here to die on a cross. Pay the price for sin for one reason. To reveal his love for us. As a demonstration of his love for us. But he didn't just love us one time. It says in present tense... He continuously loves us. He loved us then. He loves us now. He will love us in the future. He has eternal love for us. When you think you're unlovable, when nobody likes you and the dog bites you, Jesus still loves you. He always loves you. Now, that's worth coming. Amen? (laughs) To know that Jesus loves you. But that's not all. He loves us. What else is it? It says, and he released us from our sins by his blood. Or he washed us from our sin by his blood. That's in the aorist tense, which means it's an act that is done, finished, accomplished. And all the results are because of what happened then. Jesus doesn't keep dying for our sin. He died once for all, for all time. And he went and paid the price on Calvary, shed his blood as the perfect Lamb of God, and he made us clean. The only way you have standing for Almighty God, the only way you can go to heaven, the only way you have the hope of glory is because you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? And as we sang in that song, and they sing in here, worthy is the Lamb to be praised because he washed me with his precious blood. But that's not all. It says, and he made us to be a kingdom. Do you know how you become a kingdom? When a king lives inside of you. When you're under the rulership of a king, you are part of a kingdom. When you got saved, you didn't just believe in Jesus as Savior. You accepted him as Lord and king. And that means he's ruler over your heart and life. You are no longer on your throne. Now, you try to rebel sometime and jump back up there, but you are not on the throne. Jesus and Jesus alone is the ruler of your life He made you to be a kingdom for he is the king over your life, but that's not all You know what? He also wants to share the throne with you. He wants to make you a king You get to be a part of his rulership and his kingship. Isn't that pretty good? Do I look like a king? Do I? Well, you don't either. So what? but 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 we are Because we're kin and in relationship to the king of kings. We have that privilege, but not only that. And he made us to be priests to his God. Now, I'll tell you, friend, I don't have to have any mediator except Jesus, my high priest. I don't have to go to anybody to say, pray for me, help me, get me to God, because I don't have any hope. I don't have to do that at all. I get to go right into the Holy of Holies, into the mercy seat of the throne room of God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I get to go there, confess my sin before Almighty God, knowing that his blood is sufficient to pay the price of my sin. I get to go there and make requests before Almighty God because I'm a part of his family and I can go to the mercy seat and make my request known. And I am a priest. I am a priest. He made me be a priest to his God. Four, glorious, wonderful things he did for us and has done for us. He loves us. He washed us, released us from our sin. He's made us to be a kingdom and lets us also in his, share in his kingship. And we are priests unto his God. All of that because of what Jesus has done. And it says this. And therefore, to him be glory and the dominion. Forever and ever, amen. amen. He deserves the glory. Amen. He deserves dominion because of what he has done for me. What he's done for you. Now, next week we begin to see him in that glory. It says in the next verse, hey, you're about to see him. You're going to see him. And John, who knew him better than anybody who walked on the face of the earth, when he saw him, he fell at his feet as dead. Because he saw him not as the humble servant, but as the glorious king that he is. Could I ask you a question? I'm here celebrating. Many of us are celebrating because of what Jesus has done for me. Not, not just what he did for all of us, what he did for me. He loved me. He died for me. He made me be a kingdom and he. Gives me the opportunity to be a priest before his God. I celebrate that. But has he done that for you? He will. He has. He's paid the price for you. He's done everything. And he wants you to have it. But the only way you can have it is you have to come to Jesus. You have to come to Jesus admitting that you need him. You have to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I messed a lot of things up, but I want to accept you for all that you are. I want to accept you as the one who loves me, the one who died on the cross to pay the price of my sin. I want you to be king over my life and Lord over my heart. I want you to help me to be a priest before my God. I want that. I want that to happen in my heart and life. And if you'll say that and mean that in your heart, that's what Jesus is waiting for you to say. And he'll adopt you into his family and he blesses you in all those ways and all that becomes reality in your heart life It's no longer historical jesus of what he did. It's personal jesus of what he's done in my life what he's done in my heart If you've never done that my friend, I pray the holy spirit of god gets a hold of you I pray he would not let you leave this place today until you surrender your life to jesus and give your heart to christ fully I'm here to pray with you, to help you. It takes courage to step out and come down to church aisle, but it's worth it, my friend. It's worth it to give your heart to Jesus. And so today, you can make that decision to give your heart to Christ today. What about you, child of God? Say, oh, I'm saved, Brother Mac." Well, I want to ask you a question. Are you letting him be Lord over your life? (laughs) Are you letting him be king in your heart? Are you serving as a priest unto his God? Are you seeking to be holy? And blameless and to walk in a manner whereby, like John says, that I bear a testimony of the word of God and of Jesus Christ, even if it means persecution. I'm going to bear that testimony of Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? If not, you need to. He is worthy. He is worthy of our love, adoration, service, and servitude. He's worthy. And you need to give that all to him today. Maybe you have a burden on your heart today. The altar is open for you to come and pray. Maybe you need to join our fellowship. If God's Spirit leads you, we welcome you. But especially if you need Jesus Christ, you come. Immediately when we begin the invitation, you come. And child of God, if you have areas of your life you need to make a fresh commitment to Christ, you come.
0: That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com/slash-sermon-series. Jesus said, "I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world."